Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. As we would focus now for a time of uh, reading and meditating on the Word, I invite you to join me in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read a short segment of one of Jesus' experiences with his disciples and some others. And we'll start reading from verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. What that means, basically sitting in his tax collector's booth. And Jesus said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's stop our reading here at verse 13. This morning, as we would look at this short account of Jesus calling Matthew as his disciple, uh, we're going to look at this and other connecting scriptures through a particular lens, and that is of one of the virtues, the primary virtue that Jesus displayed. It's a characteristic of God. Jesus is God, come in the flesh, and that is the primary virtue of love. Last Sunday, we spoke about Jesus' teaching of love to his disciples, of how he directed them to have love one for another, and this would be the identification mark of his disciples. And so we explored what does it look like to have love within the fellowship of believers. Today, we're going to look outside beyond that of what does the love of God look like to those who are disciples, to those who are not yet disciples, those who are non Christians. How are we to love them? How did Jesus, and so we'll look at, of course, as Jesus as our example uh, in virtue of how did he interact with those and express love. There's a number of interesting dynamics here that maybe we'll touch on. Just the fact that he's calling a tax collector to be one of his disciples. Have you thought about the, the dynamics that is within the group of disciples? The tax collectors were hated and despised because they were considered traitors. They were Jews that were, had become in the employ of Rome to collect taxes. And so those that were tax collectors had the reputation of being dishonest. Uh, in their collection of taxes and um, accumulating wealth themselves through that means. And so not only was it that they were 
traitors to their own people in a sense because, of course, they despised the occupation of Rome and the taxes that were imposed upon them. Uh, so in that sense, they were despised for that. But then on top of that, that they had become rich more so than, of course, many there that were poor. Um, added to this real a- uh, animosity or bitterness uh, towards them. How, they, how could they be such traitors? And the fact that then Jesus picked one of them to be a disciple to follow him tells you the kind of people that Jesus picks and chooses out regardless of their history or background because he calls them to a transformed life. And so the past is not a hindrance to who Jesus calls. And so that's true for anyone that is here and including those that are joining online. Glad that you join us as well. But is there someone here that maybe thinks that Jesus is not interested in you because of your past? Because of the decisions that you've made, the sins that you've indulged in, the people that you have hurt or exploited, the deep wickedness that's in your heart, Or maybe the self-righteousness and the justification that it takes place in your own heart. Regardless of the full range of what your past is and where is your present state today, Jesus is very interested in calling you and interested in a meaningful relationship with you, one that will transform you. And I hope that through the course of the preaching of the word, you will experience the love of God reaching out to you. Verse 10 talks about Jesus coming and sitting in the house. It's assumed to be Matthew's house in the context that just sort of flows that. It doesn't say that explicitly, but that's the implied implication here that he's now having a meal in Matthew's house. And this is quite a meal. And quite a gathering of people here. Because not only does he have his disciples, 12 disciples, I think by now he would have collected all 12 of them. He didn't call them all at once. There was a period of time. So I'm not sure if all 12 of them were here, but I would assume so. Plus it says, and Matthew being one of the 12 now, and many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So this was quite a group of people. of people that normally do not connect well with the religious people of that day, publicans and sinners. People were have that reputation. But those were the people, they would have been socially connected somehow to Matthew or to some of the disciples or people that uh, Jesus collected along the way that said, come along to this meal. I'm not sure how it was determined who all of them that were there, but nevertheless, they were there. And of course, uh, somehow the Pharisees noticed this. Um, perhaps the crowd was large enough that it was noticeable from the street. Uh, the Pharisees come by, check out what's, what's going on here. And by now Jesus was recognizable uh, to them as he's had some encounters with them. And they see this picture that doesn't make sense to them. These are not religious people. These are not people that seem to be interested in coming to the synagogue or coming to the temple. 
um, why is Jesus hanging out with them? Jesus responds in a very interesting way that reveals something about his character. As he said, they that be whole don't need a doctor. Those that are well don't need a doctor, but those that are sick. Is he implying here that the Pharisees were not sick and therefore they don't need a doctor? I don't think so here. The implication here is those that think they are whole don't need a doctor. A doctor can't help you if you think you are fine and you're not interested in his remedies. Such is true for Jesus. He offers the only life-giving solution for your sin and offers eternal life, offers forgiveness. But if you think you are a person that doesn't need forgiveness... You have a measure of self-righteousness. You have a, an accolade list of good works or good behavior and good attitudes and good lists of service. If that's how you define yourself, not one in need of forgiveness. You don't recognize the hidden sin that's in your life. Your definition of sin is far too small. It's not a biblical definition. Then Jesus can't help you. Not that he's not capable, but because the condition of your heart prevents him. You've got blockages there. You've got walls of uh, barriers that are keeping him out. The barrier of self-righteousness. And if there is someone here that is in that place, I encourage you to tear that barrier down. Let Jesus in to really see things how they are in your life. So that you're not looking at yourself through colored glasses that you don't see your own sin. Turn to him in repentance. But he quotes from the prophets, and he quotes from the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, a particular statement. It's Hosea 6, chapter 6, if you want to turn there and see that connection. It's significant that he's quoting from the book of Hosea because Hosea is a very unusual book. A number of the prophets did unusual things, and Hosea was one of those. As God directed him to get married to a harlot, they had children together, but it looks like that marriage was a very broken marriage because the harlot didn't stay with him, his wife Gomer, and left and went back into a lifestyle of prostitution. So you can imagine the brokenness there. Had three children together. And God directed Hosea to go seek her out and rescue her from that lifestyle and bring her back. Actually buy her, pay some money to redeem her. And God uses that experience of Hosea to describe that's what his experience is like with the children of Israel as they keep leaving him and going after other gods. That's the type of adultery. He describes it as spiritual adultery. And so the book of Hosea is a picture of the character of God, of his love and mercy reaching to the one that persistently gets lost again, even. And it's in the middle of this book where the heart of God... um, 
is revealed in this particular phrase. Of course, there's lots of revelations of the heart of God throughout the book of Hosea. But chapter 6, of which Jesus is quoting, he says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So translated into application, what that means is he desires meaningful relationship with himself. The knowledge of God, that's not just knowing about God, but knowing God is more important than merely religious behavior. Because the children of Israel had lots of religious behavior. Some of it was directed towards Jehovah, and other religious behavior was directed towards the idols that were around them. That's not what God was interested in. Merely religious behavior. He wanted meaningful relationship, exclusive relationship, exclusive worship as God. And he desires the same thing today. But his description of mercy is this word in Hebrew that I've spoken about a number of times before, hesed, which describes, is translated into English in, in a number of different ways because it's a big concept that doesn't fit just one word. But mercy is the most common way it's translated. But loving kindness, graciousness, these kinds of, this kind of concept here of this loving, kind nature, merciful nature of God as his primary characteristic. To love people. This is what Jesus came to do. To love people. And that his love rescues people not only from their sin, Certainly, but also other expressions of sin that maybe not be so obvious, that being expressions of false religion. Jesus came to uh, rescue people from that as well. And so he quotes from Hosea because the Pharisees no doubt would be aware of this, but they would have missed some of the significance of this. And sometimes we may miss that significance as well, the loving nature of God. When people meet you, what is the primary characteristic they experience from you? Do they experience the love of God through you in your interactions with them? This is what was primarily noticeable about Jesus and why he attracted the kinds of people that he did. This is different, shall we say, radically above Perhaps the regular um, reputation that a church-going person has. Because sometimes a regular, the, 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 uh, the reputation, um, sometimes unjustifiably so, perhaps falsely so, but nevertheless, it may be such that church-going people don't hang around with sinners. There's reasons for that, and we can explore some of that. But then that develops this separation in the sense that we're not able to minister to those that need it the most. And then they feel judged or unwelcome because they don't measure up to the standards of a church-going person. And so then they think they are unloved and think they are not welcome and think that they don't fit in and think that they can't fit in or won't fit in and won't be accepted. Well, this is precisely how Jesus was different And so if we are accurate imitators of Jesus, shall we say, 
true disciples, not just imitators, maybe that's the wrong word here, uh, true disciples and followers of Jesus, this will become more and more noticeable in us, in our interactions with people. The nature of God. So that that is the primary experience that they feel from us. Not someone that is judgmental or looking down on them or noticing all of their faults and sins and how they won't fit into the church um, unless they change all kinds of things. Well, some of those things are true, but the Lord will reveal that and work that in their heart. Jesus was different in how his love shone through. And so if there is someone here today... Maybe that, uh, or maybe someone isn't here that obviously is not going to hear this, but I would hope that they would, they would come to know that if your experience has been that, that you have feel unwelcome or a sense of distance because of what I have done or what we have done collectively as a fellowship, I want to apologize for that and pray that you give us more opportunity to demonstrate genuine in the, the love of Jesus because we are not perfect in that expression either. And if you become a disciple of Jesus, you won't be perfect in that expression either. And this is the the, the dilemma or the, the difficulty, shall we say, that God has in working with us as his disciples. That at times we are poor representatives of who he is. And how that must hurt him and how that hurts his cause. And how that uh, at times when the church doesn't function or demonstrate ourselves that way, how it turns people off because they don't feel loved. But I pray that that be different. I'm sorry that it looks like this microphone's not working very well. I'll have to move on to this one. Making too much noise. That Jesus is different. And that our encounters with him stand out with people would stand out in that way. And so regardless of whatever way you have been hurt... The remedy for you is to turn to Jesus. He is the solution for your situation in life, for your sin. Repent from your sin. Turn to him in faith and believe. Let's look at some other expressions of the character of Jesus that connect with him as we work our way through some of the gospel teachings. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 15 about how much he loves people. Luke chapter 15, then drew near all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Same picture again, right? And then Jesus teaches in a parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And calls friends and neighbors and rejoices. But the main point here is Jesus is looking for the one. Not that he forgets about 99, but at that moment, those 99 are in a good place. And so he directs his attention to the one who is lost and needs that attention. Is that our focus as well? It's easy for us to hang around with the 99 because they're comfortable. They affirm us. We affirm them. We see things the same way and so forth. But what about the one that doesn't fit into this 90 and 9? Or your group of 9, or your group of 4, whatever that group is that you like to hang around with in life or here at church. 
Maybe it's so predictable that people can know, oh, this person, this group always hangs out together and they hardly go outside that group. And hardly anybody can really connect into that group either. I pray that that not be descriptive of us to that exclusive degree that people feel unwelcome. And they would come and everyone has their group and they're kind of left out. They feel awkward breaking into any one of the groups. But that we would be that nature of reaching out to the one that is off by themselves. Maybe they're sitting in a corner. Maybe they're standing outside somewhere. They need someone to connect with. They don't know how. Or there's barriers in their life that are preventing them from doing that. May we have the character of Jesus. That primary character of love and mercy. Loving kindness in reaching out to such a person. There's a very prominent statement as Jesus has an interaction with one person that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 21. As someone comes to him, he's given the title of the rich young ruler, and he asks him a question, and there's some exchange there, but the main point I want to look at here is verse 21. Is in the middle of this conversation, it says here, Jesus beholding him, looking at him, loved him and then he makes a statement just but it's it's just fascinating that mark reports this and mark was not an eyewitness to this uh well not likely he wrote the gospel uh, of mark and he would have collected the things that he wrote from those that were eyewitnesses but perhaps he might have been at this particular place Uh, but either way it was noteworthy so much that in this exchange that Jesus loved him. And it seemed that Jesus made a point of making sure this young man here uh, recognized or experienced the love of Jesus. And what I want to draw out from this encounter here is, do people experience from us love as the primary element of our interaction? Good answers are secondary Yeah, good answers are important for sure. We don't want to give false answers. We want to accurately represent what the gospel is and uh, the kingdom of God and so forth in our encounter with people. But of higher priority than that, do they experience the love of God in that exchange? Because that will set us apart from other exchanges that people have. You know, there's lots of people that have right answers and good answers. But if a good answer is given, lacking love then it's going to be experienced as judgmental. It's going to be experienced as cold, as indifferent, as uncaring. And then we're not representing the gospel. We are in a sense of the, the truth of it, maybe, and the words of it. But the essence of the nature and character of God as embodied in the gospel will be absent from us if it's lacking love. May we grow in the expression of that love. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. We can see that love is described here as the primary motivation of God reaching out to us. Let's turn to John chapter 4 and look at a particular uh, encounter that's recorded in detail. Um, As Jesus has an encounter with a most unlikely woman. As he and his disciples are traveling and they go from Judea into Galilee. 
And he goes through a place of the country that many Jews would travel around, take a longer journey rather than going through this place, Samaria. Because Jesus has an appointment, shall we say, a divine appointment, nobody knows about it except for him, with a particular woman that has a very broken life. And so he's having conversation as he sits there in Jacob's well, and the woman comes to draw water. And he engages her in a conversation about living water and how he uses the current circumstances to try to bridge the conversation into something more meaningful than just the present circumstances, that of eternal life. And he offers himself as one that gives eternal life. And through this conversation, the woman is intrigued, of course. The fact that he's even talking to him, uh, that he's engaged in this conversation in the first place, and asking her for something, a drink. And then Jesus says, go call your husband and come. And we can talk more, because she asked him a question. And it re- she reveals then a little bit about herself. Well, I don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, of course, knowing her life intimately, begins to explore that area. I think many of us know the story, know the account very well. And in that encounter, he reveals to himself as the Messiah. The conversation goes to Messiah. Jesus intentionally steers it that way and reveals himself to her as the Messiah. Imagine the significance of that, a Samaritan woman despised by the Jews, and vice versa. And he chooses to reveal himself to her as among the first, as a public revelation of who he is. This is early on in his ministry. And so let's learn from how Jesus expressed love in this conversation to this woman. As we see him engaging in kindness and compassion, And he draws her into a conversation with intriguing statements and questions that draw her into the conversation. And he points out something into her life or asks her or acknowledges something in her life without being judgmental. This is where it starts getting into something really sensitive, right? He knows that she has a very broken past, a string of broken relationships, one marriage after another, divorce, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. And now the person that she's with is not even her husband. So she's in the middle of an affair. Maybe the, the, the fifth divorce or whatever the case, sixth divorce has not yet happened. Really tricky to touch that subject to someone without, feel, without them feeling judged or judgmental. But yet Jesus is, in, is able, because of his demeanor of love and care and concern for her, just as we've sung in the hymn, who is he that careth for us? It's only Jesus that's able to do it to this degree. But as his disciples, he calls us into that same kind of care. And he steers the conversation towards Messiah, because that is the solution. He is the solution. The main point of the conversation is not merely identifying her sin and saying, uh, making her feel more guilty about it. You know, well, if you would have only done this 10 years ago, then you would be on a different path today. Um, if only you would have done this, you know, why, why did you do that? You could have done a whole lot better. Your parents taught you better. Um, how about tomorrow? Start better. The main point was not just getting her to change her behavior 
or to become more committed in her marriage or recommitted to her marriage and drop break off the affair and whatever. The main point was turn to Jesus. Because even if she would have fixed all those things by sheer moral willpower and strength, she wouldn't have had forgiveness of past sins. She wouldn't have had eternal life because it's not something that you can earn by just cleaning up your behavior. It only comes received as a gift given by the love of God that he desires for each one of you. And so those of us who are disciples, may we learn from that type of conversation that we point people to Jesus. God will reveal to us in the course of that conversation how Jesus can minister to them, the type of forgiveness that they need. That's going to be inevitable. But may we do that in a way that they don't feel we are heaping condemnation upon them. A life of sin does have its condemnation. And if they refuse Jesus, there is condemnation. That is part of the gospel. That's why Jesus came to rescue people from that. Rescue us. If we move on to John chapter 8, Jesus has another conversation. This one, shall we say, was a divine appointment, but he, in a sense, didn't arrange that. The Pharisees had different motives in bringing another woman to him that had also a very broken past. Someone that was caught in the act of adultery. John chapter 8. And in this way, Jesus encounters them in a different way. As he didn't respond right away, he took time for things to sink in. As the accusers are standing around and the woman is there, They knowing what the law says, and so they're trying to trick Jesus into judgment here of what the law says. The law says a person like that needs to be stoned to death, because that's a pretty serious sin. And that's how sin is judged, according to the law. And so they're thinking they're going to put Jesus in a a dilemma here. Because if he just lets that go, then... They accuse him of being unrighteous and not upholding the law. And if he agrees to condemning her, yes, go ahead and throw stones at her, then, in a sense, they may feel they've somewhat defeated his ministry because up until now, he wasn't falling in line that way. Jesus, having his ultimate wisdom, finds a way out of that dilemma. And he says... Whoever among you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Now that statement alone had the conviction that it touched every person's conscience there. They felt they couldn't do it. And in that conversation, in that simple encounter, and in those few words, Jesus demonstrated something. His love and compassion for the woman His love for the people that were accusing them because he also showed them a better way and highlighted to them that they also had sin and that they felt they were not in a position to be able to do this. As Jesus took upon himself the sin of the whole world and offers forgiveness for those who repent and explained to the woman, I don't condemn you either. 
go and sin no more. As she began to experience the life transformation that an encounter with Jesus has. I encourage each of us, make encounters with Jesus. Another word to describe the virtue that flows out of Jesus is compassion. That fits in with this word in Hebrew, hesed, mercy, love, kindness, compassion. It's where you feel with the people of where they're at and how they got there. Jesus is in a crowd of people in Mark chapter 6. Verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So he saw how they lacked meaningful leadership in their life on things that mattered. This element of being of a shepherd, spiritual leadership in their life. And he had compassion on them. And so this element of compassion is Jesus knew and he sees the whole picture. You know, we we have limited understanding and limited view. And so when we see someone behaving in a sinful way, when we see someone entangled in a sinful lifestyle, we don't see all of what transpired that got that person there. What were the forces and motivations and brokenness in that person's past that culminated into the decisions that they did? None of them are justified. Their sin, and everyone is responsible for this sin, but Jesus reaches out with compassion because he sees the brokenness and the sin that is around them, how other people's sins have affected that person and brokenness and hurt and destruction. And, and neglect or abuse or um, bullying or uh, whatever. Temptations and forces that... And, and then, of course, the decisions that that person made in response to that that contributed and, and sinned and so forth. But he sees that whole picture and he responds with compassion. Because that is what draws people into a love relationship with him such that they can be transformed. It's not that it's compassion that uh, is separated from truth and that um, truth is absent in his compassion. No, truth is present in his compassion in the whole picture of what has taken place. And the fact that he has taken all of that brokenness in sin that they have committed and that has been done to them. He has taken that upon himself and he offers healing and forgiveness and restoration to those in that state. And so if there is someone here that is in that position, Jesus knows. He knows who has hurt you. He has known uh, and knows why you've made the decisions that you've had and the difficulties, the temptations that you struggle with, the forces that are against you, the influences, the dilemma decisions that you've made. He knows your personal motivations. He knows the kinds of sins that attracted you and keep you entangled. And he wants to rescue you from all of that and give you the power to forgive those that have hurt you and transform you. 
This element of compassion, we can learn much from that. Because another way to describe this element of love and compassion is unconditional love. And what does that mean? As we love someone regardless of the kind of person they are, regardless of the kind of lifestyle that they are living, regardless of what they stand for or maybe what bandwagon socially or politically that they are on, unconditional love looks past those categories and sees them as a person valued by God, created in God's image, whom God wants to redeem and transform. And so we struggle with that. How do we express love unconditionally in a way that they don't receive the message that we're approving of their lifestyle, that everything is okay with their sinful life? They just carry on because we're just going to keep loving them. And we do keep loving them, but it's not okay to stay in sin. And so we have this, this tricky uh, dynamic here. Of how, how do we do that? How do we love someone but yet express disapproval of their sinful behavior? And I'm not going to be able to give you a clear answer of exactly how to do that in every case. This is where, as disciples of Jesus, we are uh, indwelled by the Holy Spirit who gives us that revelation as we need it, uh, the revelation, as we need him to inspire us and to direct those conversations. But it doesn't happen just merely on the moment. It takes meaningful discipleship walk with Jesus so that we know what he is like and read the accounts of how he interacted with people that were in sinful lifestyles so that we know how to love someone and accept them as they are without implying approval of their lifestyle, of their sinful choices, of what they have done. And one of the things that I guess we, we... um, struggle with is, is compromising. Well, I want to make sure we don't compromise on the truth, that, that they don't misunderstand us, that we somehow think sin is okay. And that's important, that we don't compromise on truth. But have we considered the fact that truth isn't the only thing that we can compromise? Have you thought that perhaps you might be compromising the expression of hasid, the expression of love, the expression of mercy, the expression of compassion? And sometimes maybe in our diligence of making sure we don't compromise truth, we end up compromising love, compassion, mercy, and grace. And so all of us are on a journey, learning and growing to be like Jesus in that way. May we recognize sort of the full spectrum of how Jesus wants us to be. Of course, there are some situations when we hang out with people, as Jesus hanged up with people, got together with them, and so forth, that we may be tempted to sin ourselves. In fact, maybe there are some people in that kind of a crowd that would intentionally target you, trying to get you to sin. There we would need to exercise compassion. And, of course, discernment is the word I was looking for. Exercise discernment so that... We don't become entangled in sin. And so there may be some situations that we decide we, we can't handle this. Certainly not on our own. And we may need to withdraw from certain settings or certain encounters with people if they are intentionally targeting us to get us to sin. And that happens, you know, there may be those uh, uh, among us that are uh, most of the youth, uh, some of the youth are here, some of them are in Sunday school. Um, your interactions with people at school 
And uh, maybe there's something on a screen that they want to show you that you know is going to be damaging to your mind and to your thought process. And they're intentionally targeting you, trying to rope you in to these kinds of indulgences. This is where you need to be on guard and vigilant so that you do not get entangled in their sin and they try to get entangled you into sin as well on your own. Again, it takes wisdom and discernment by the power of your Holy Spirit. You know, there's many other expressions. We'll have to uh, cut it off shortly. Um, But we move it on maybe to one final uh, element of uh, Jesus' teaching and his expression is not merely uh, loving and having compassion on those that are, are sinners, of course, and in need of God's grace, but in fact, even those that are active enemies. As he says on the Sermon Mount of the Mount, he says, I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And this is one of the marks of the, being a child of God, to love people to that degree. And so may God inspire us to be able uh, to do that and to effectively be the representatives of his love. As I was just uh, pondering on this, I'm going to close with a um, just reading uh, the words of a particular song that just describe the magnitude of the love of God. And therefore, as his disciples, may we become like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win, his erring child to reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God. How rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Amen.